welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. Dr. Emma Katz of Liverpool Hope University researches the impact of domestic violence and abuse on children and young people. Her work explores coercive control, agency, resistance, recovery, and mother-child supportiveness in domestic abuse contexts. In this podcast, she meets with Head of Practice Michelle Phillips to discuss her work and the significance of the relationship between non-abusive parents and their children for social care interventions. Emma, can you say a bit about your background and your current research focus, please? Yes, so I'm a senior lecturer at Liverpool Hope University and I research how domestic abuse affects children and young people. I'm particularly interested in how children and young people and and their and their parent who's experiencing domestic abuse experience coercive control and the agency that they have, the, the way that they actively respond to the situation rather than just being passive and the ways that they resist and also the ways that they recover from the situation once they've managed to break free and also looking at how mums and children, assuming the mum is the, the parent who's experienced the abuse, looking at how mums and children support each other in domestic abuse contexts um, and um, so this is based on, on my research that I did with with mums and children who'd, who'd been through this and I was privileged enough to be able to interview some mums and children who've been through this and hear their experiences and views and stories. Your research talks about recovery. Can you describe what recovery looks like for adults and children who've experienced domestic abuse? Yeah, so I think that... Firstly, it's it's really important to realise what it is they're recovering from because they're not just recovering from from living with someone who's used physical violence towards them. It's it's much more than that. They're likely to be recovering from what's known as coercive control. So I find it useful to explain coercive control with a bit of a metaphor. So imagine that life is like driving a car and you want to be in the driving seat of your own life and choose which paths to go down, which roads to take. And when we look for a romantic partner, we're looking for someone to share the drive with us. So perhaps they get into our car and we take turns driving and we don't go down any roads that that the other person doesn't want to go down. You know, we make those, those joint equal decisions about which paths to take as a couple. But a perpetrator of domestic abuse, a perpetrator of coercive control, has no interest in sharing the drive with their partner. Instead, they get into their partner's car and everything seems really lovely because they seem attentive and caring and protective. But then slowly, over time, what starts to happen is they start to persuade you that actually you're not very good at driving your own car. You're not very good at being in charge of your own life because you get things wrong and they'd be so much better at it than you. And so they start to prise you out of the driving seat and put you in the back seat. And then as the control increases and increases, you find that you're not even in the back seat anymore. They've taken you out of that back seat and put you in the boot. So there you are in the boot of the car of your life and the perpetrator has driven off with it, taking you in directions that you do not want to go down and they're making all the decisions for you and all you can do is just think, what can I do today that won't upset my partner? And you're restraining and monitoring all your own behaviour and your, and your partner's insisting that you do that in order to keep pleasing them and to not upset them and to not trigger the negative reaction from them. 
So when you're talking about recovery, you're talking about the the adult victim getting out of that boot and getting back into the driving seat of their own life and feeling confident enough to do that. So that involves a couple of things. First of all, the perpetrator needs to be got out of the vehicle, got out of that driving seat, which obviously they won't do voluntarily. They're very unlikely to do voluntarily. They're going to have to be prized out and kept out. So it's about making that driving seat available again and, and supporting the victim so that the driving seat becomes available to them again. And then it's also about giving them, helping them to to have the confidence again, to realize actually, I am a good driver, I can do this, I can drive my car safely, I can take charge of my life, I can make decisions, and I'll be, I'll be good enough at that, I'll be pretty good at that, and that's what I'm going to do. So that's, that's kind of the basis of recovery. And there's a really nice framework for recovery that I, I came across in, in um, the work of someone else. And I thought it just made perfect sense for how domestic abuse survivors experience recovery. It's called the CHIME framework. So like how wind chimes chime. And CHIME stands for connectedness, hope and optimism about the future, identity, meaning in life and empowerment. And I thought that that really describes what recovery is about, because if you're if you've been stuck in that boot for a long time, you'll have lost a lot of your connections to the people around you. And so reconnecting is a really important part of of recovery and hope and optimism about the future. Again, it's that feeling that you can be in charge of your life. You you can drive your life in really promising directions. You know, life can be good again your identity, feeling that you are worthwhile, you are important, um, you know, you have positive qualities, feeling that life is meaningful and feeling empowered, you know, feeling that you can make decisions for yourself, you can stand up to people and that's okay and that's that's appropriate and you can feel strong in doing that. So I think that time framework really touches on a lot of what's important about recovery. And also, for the children who've experienced domestic abuse, they've experienced something very similar to the mum. Um, I'm assuming that it's mum who's the, the parent who's who's been the victim of abuse but and the survivor of abuse, but of course it could be dad. Um, it's statistically less likely to be dad, but it could be dad. But I'll, um, I'll be saying mum sort of as the default just because that is statistically far more likely to be the case. But please don't think I'm I'm ignoring the dads out there who are recovering as well because they're equally as, as valid and important and uh, this would apply to them as well. But yeah, so thinking about the children, they've been through something really similar um, to the mum because they've not been able to make their own choices. They've their ordinary everyday freedoms have been taken away and they've probably had to spend a lot of their time just like the mum has trying to please the perpetrator and do what the perpetrator wants and not trigger off a negative reaction so for the children it's also about realizing that that's not the right way to live and that the children should have some say over what their everyday life should look like and they should they should be able to make those ordinary everyday decisions that everyone should be able to make like you know what do I want to do what do I like doing um what would make me happy and and being able to do some of those things so a lot of recovery for the children is also about finding that empowerment finding 
that sense of autonomy. We're not really used to thinking about that in children. We're used to just thinking about children as doing what they're told. But actually, it, obviously children are in the process of growing up. They're in the process of becoming adults. So it's really important for them to have some increasing autonomy and independence and decision-making. Perpetrators of coercive control squash all of that, and make that really difficult for children. So that's part of children's recoveries as well as adults. Okay, thanks, Emma. So... On that, we often hear the term failure to protect, mm. and a lot of emphasis is placed on protection being characterised as the non-abusive parents separating from an abusive partner. Your research invites us to look more deeply at the parent-child relationship and the many ways in which parents support their child's recovery. Can you say more about what you found? Absolutely, and I think that's such an important question. So... I think that, firstly, it's important to say that it's really only the perpetrator or only by dealing with the perpetrator that we can make the children safe because the non-abusive parent could go to the absolute ends of the earth to try and make those children safe. They could move to the other side of the country, change their name, you know, uproot their lives, uproot the children's lives. They could go to the most extreme lengths to try and make the children safe. And yet the children and the mum are still worried that the perpetrator is going to be popping up on their street one day, outside of their house one day. And the perpetrator may indeed be actively looking for them and determined to make that happen. And they're still living their lives in the shadow of that fear. So really, it is only by dealing with the perpetrator that we can actually make children safe. It's, it's just not possible to say to the adult victim, you can make the child safe. They're a victim too. Um, and I think we need to do a lot more to, to tackle the, the danger that is coming from the perpetrator and neutralise that for the sake of, of the, the adult and the child victims. But thinking about the ways that the, the adult victim, who, who would usually be mum, is trying to protect the children and doing the best job that they can with that, even though it's always going to be limits to how much they can do that, but they're doing the very best job they possibly can with it and, and often being really successful with it. Thinking about how they do that, I think... Before, the, before they've separated from, from the perpetrator, when they're still in that relationship with the perpetrator, what, what the mum will often do is, firstly, she'll be trying to protect the children from getting physically hurt. So trying to protect them from seeing any physical violence, trying to protect them from being hurt by the perpetrator themselves, you know, trying to stop their dad lashing out at them and, and hurting them. Um, and... She'll also be doing a hundred little everyday things to try and give them as normal a life as possible. So whenever it's within her power to, to give the children a bit of normality, a bit of stability, a bit of routine, a bit of fun, a bit of positivity, my research suggested that that's what she'll be trying to do. And that is enormously protective because it, that is the only thing that's giving the children that little bit of normal home life that they desperately need. And mums are often very successful at giving the children that little bit of normal home life to stop their home life from just being completely 100% miserable and controlled by the perpetrator. Mum is often very successful at doing that. And then when mums have separated from perpetrators they'll often do a great deal to try and repair any of the harms that uh, the domestic abuse has caused. Um, so what I found was that mums were supporting their children by reassuring them that nothing had been their fault. They were 
giving the children a sense that they were there for them and providing this sort of everyday emotional security for them. You know, you can come and talk to me about any problems that you're having. I'm here for you. They were making the children feel that, that they were connected and, and supported and part of a loving family. And that was really crucial to the children's recovery and it was really protective behaviour from mum. And, and it was doing a great deal to help the children. So I thought that that was amazing stuff that mums were doing. So the converse side to that, we know that sometimes an abusive parent will actively disrupt that relationship between their child and the non-abusive parent. What do we know about the types of tactics used and what can be the impact? Yes, this is such an important one because I was thinking about why it was that perpetrators do that. And I, I was reading this book by Judith Herman called Trauma and Recovery. And what Herman said was that as long as the victim maintains any other human connection with anyone else except their abuser, then the abuser's power is limited. So the victim having any other human connection will limit the perpetrator's power. And I think that's often a big part of why the perpetrator targets their partner's relationship with the kids, because it's a source of power for that partner. It's, it's keeping them connected to another human being and that is dangerous to the perpetrator and it, it does, it stops the perpetrator from gaining that absolute control over their partner that they're seeking to gain. So they'll attack that mother-child relationship. So in terms of what kind of tactics the perpetrators are using, there's a lot of research into this, not just my own. There's, there's been many studies on this and it's well known the kinds of things perpetrators are doing. So they can insult and, and abuse the mum in front of the children, you know, by saying things like, mummy's silly, mummy doesn't really know what she's doing, mummy's not very good at that. Or, or more bluntly, they can say, you know, really abusive things, really overtly abusive things like, you know, mummy's a waste of space or, you know, mummy doesn't have a brain um it can be really insulting and just convincing the children that that mummy is 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 useless and not worth their time and, and speaking of time perpetrators often prevent mums and children from spending positive time together and that positive fun time together is that is like the the lifeblood of good relationships you know that is what makes the relationship um, strong and positive so by taking that time away it's a really effective way of perpetrators disrupting the relationship so whenever mum's trying to spend time with the kids the perpetrator can stop her and insist that she comes and pays attention to him instead you know or insist that the children go and do something else just disrupting all the time their attempts to spend time together stopping mum from keeping the children in a good routine you know again coming in and disrupting that so like say mum was trying to get the children to eat a healthy dinner at a reasonable time. The perpetrator might come in and say, you know, eat these sweets, you know, eat this ice cream, you don't need to have your dinner. And then the children, of course, they'll be thinking, wow, dad's the most fun parent ever, you know, giving us sweets instead of our dinner. And the children don't realise how unhealthy that is and, and what the dad's really trying to do. And they can start to even think of mum as like the baddie or the boring one because she's just trying to keep them in this healthy routine. And that's really harmful for children because then children start to see unhealthy parenting behaviour as healthy and they start to see healthy parenting behaviour as boring and that can have real negative implications for, the, for their whole upbringing and their whole life. So that behaviour from perpetrators is really toxic. Um, perpetrators can claim that 
that the mum has bad parenting skills, you know, you're a terrible mum, these kids won't listen to you. A mum might believe that they're not listening to me because I'm a terrible mum and and not realise that the problem is that all the all the things the perpetrator is doing to undermine that relationship. It's actually nothing to do with her parenting skills at all. They're fine, but her ability to use those parenting skills is being undermined. And then that the perpetrator can harm the children to upset the mum, you know, and threaten the children to gain the mum's compliance um, and can re really manipulate the children into blaming, into blaming the mum for his abusive behaviour. So making the children think, you know, if your mum just shut up and did as she was told, then everything in the family would be okay. And then the children start to think, yeah, that's what mum should do. Mum should just shut up and do as she's told. And then everything in the family would be okay. And... Obviously, not all children will think that. Some of them might be able to turn around and say, hold on a minute, that is nonsense. It's not mum, it's you. But some children won't be able to think that. It really depends on the circumstances. And some children really, really will end up blaming their mum for their dad's abusive behaviour or vice versa if, if, if dad was the victim. So those tactics can be so harmful and you can end up with situations where the children... You know, they, they greatly prefer the abusive parent over their non-abusive parent. And that's really harmful for their well-being because that abusive parent does not have their best interests at heart. And their non-abusive parent does and is doing their best. And the children end up in a situation where they can't recognise that. And if that carries on, you know, and that carries on into their adolescence and into their early adulthood, that would just ha have profoundly negative implications for their lives. So it's a really serious issue. And I think everyone needs to be more aware of of perpetrators doing that and um, there needs to be far more interventions and help for the non-abusive parent and far more done to hold the abusive parent accountable for that behaviour. In your work you talk about the agency of children and how they actively try to keep themselves safe. Um, this isn't something that's talked about a lot. What do we know about the strategies children use and why is it important that we recognise their agency? When we say the word agency, that's like a, a word that comes from sociology and it means to be active in your own life um, rather than being just passive and pushed around by events, to have some say over the direction of your life. That's what that word means. It's not an agency in the sense of like an organisation. I, I just uh, I, Everyone always finds that word dead confusing. It's a strange word. But yeah, it means being active in your life. And children are active in their own lives. Anyone who's the parent of a child knows that children are pretty active in their own lives and in saying what they want. And of course, that's a good thing because they are an independent human being, although it can be very irritating at times. Um, but it is a good thing because they are an independent human being. They're in the process of growing up into a into an adult who will need to, to have lots of agency. So it's good that they're flexing their agentic muscles, as irritating as it can be. Um but yeah, what children, children living with domestic abuse are no exception. They're in more extreme circumstances, but they're still active in their own lives. So what they might be doing is they might be using all sorts of different strategies to, to protect themselves and to try and keep themselves safe. Um, they might be getting themselves out the way um, of the perpetrator, particularly at times where they think that the perpetrator is particularly dangerous to them. Um, they might be finding places to hide. They might be doing things to self-soothe and to, to stop themselves from feeling, you know, too panicked. So that might be listening to music, um, reading, um, all sorts of different escape strategies, you know, mental escape strategies, just to give themselves something else to focus on. They might be helping their 
their their parent who's being abused. Um, they might be, you know, doing things in an everyday way to support their mum to keep her to keep her morale up, to let her know that she is loved and she is valued by them. Um, sometimes they might, if there's physical violence, they might intervene and, and try and protect mum. They might be the ones calling the police. So they're doing all sorts of things. Sometimes the things they're doing may not look like an, an active strategy because it might involve doing nothing. It might involve freezing. But even that is an active strategy because they are doing that because their brain has calculated that is the best way to stay safe. So... Even when it looks like they're being passive, it's actually an active choice to appear passive to protect themselves. And it's important to recognise this because if we if we just think of children as these passive victims, we miss the fact that they did have strategies and they did have strengths and they deployed these to try and keep themselves safe and sometimes to try and keep their siblings safe or to keep their um their their parent who is being abused safe and it's really important to recognize that children do have these strengths and these strategies because we need to give some credit for that and say well done for it and to realize that actually they were strong and that will help them moving forward because it will help their recoveries to know that they were strong even in these extreme circumstances and what does that say about them you know it says that they're amazing and it says that that they have a lot you know they have a lot of power and internal resources moving forward that they can draw on in in their lives um but at the same time saying that children were active doesn't mean that they don't need help just like saying that the adult victim was active and, and used strategies to try and resist and to protect themselves to protect their children that doesn't mean the adult victim doesn't need help either so it's this balance of recognizing that they were active but also recognizing that they needed help um and often it's the children who who seem like they're okay that they then don't get our attention and and they don't get the help that they need so some children who are victims of abuse the way they respond to the abuse is they become people pleasers and they become they, they become the child who excels at school and gets fantastic grades and they're polite and they're easy to talk to and you feel good after you've talked to them and you think what a great child that is and aren't they doing well but inside they're they're scared and they feel that things aren't okay they they lack internal reassurance and they're doing all these things to try and and to feel better but it's not really making them feel better and those children often slip through the net because they're not super withdrawn and they're not aggressive and they seem like they're doing really well, but they need help as well. They are often the ones who slip through the net, particularly if they're doing really well at school. So it's like there's no cause for concern. But actually, if a child has been through domestic abuse, it is going to have taken a toll on them in some way or another. And we do need to dig a little bit deeper and, and find out how they're feeling underneath that 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 surface level appearance of, of being good and doing really well so I, I would just um I would always urge people to to look into the situation of those kids as well as the kids who seem aggressive or who seem withdrawn going off piste a little bit does that um those strategies ever involve collusion with the perpetrator in some circumstances, children will keep themselves safe by aligning with the perpetrator because they've realised that the perpetrator is the one with all the power in the family and, you know, the perpetrator is dominating the home and they realise that if they align with the perpetrator and please the perpetrator, then they won't be targeted for the worst of the abuse. 
Um, and that's a heartbreaking situation for a child to have to to do that. And that really suggests that that service responses have done, you know, have really let that child down if the child's ended up feeling like they have to do that. Um, and yeah, and then the child can convince themselves that that is what they wanted to do. You know, they can rationalise it. They can say, you know, well, my dad isn't abusive. My dad's great and my mum's useless. And, you know, they can have all these rationalisations for why they've ended up behaving this way and really come to believe their own narrative. And, yeah, that can be super destructive and, and really hurtful for the adult victim and really damaging for that child's own health and well-being. And, again, how they'll be as an adolescent and a young adult if they've had to start thinking that way that's going to affect them as a, as a young person and, and into their own adulthood. So yes, yeah, sometimes colluding with the perpetrator is a child's strategy for keeping safe and, and that's a really heartbreaking one. So what kind of environments do mums and children need to recover? Well, if we're talking about recovery, then obviously separation is a big part of that usually because usually the perpetrator is not going to stop their abusive behaviour um, so separation is really the only option most of the time, but separation doesn't equal safety and doesn't equal recovery because perpetrators have invested a huge amount of effort and energy into getting control of, of the adult victim and often the children as well. And they're not going to want to relinquish that control anytime soon. And it's not like they've respected any of the other decisions that the adult, that their adult partner has ever made. So why would they respect the decision to separate from them? So very often, obviously, the abuse will carry on, the perpetrator will carry on, you know, with, with the abusive tactics they were using before, perhaps introduce new ones, their abuse can escalate and get worse because you've by separating from them, they've broken that, you've broken that control of theirs and they really need to do a lot to try and get it back. So their abusiveness can really escalate. So safe, so separation does not equal safety, does not equal recovery. So what is actually needed for recovery, I think is three things. I kind of imagine it is the three pillars of recovery. We need an end or a huge reduction in the perpetrator's abuse. So... The, the mum and the children need to be experiencing far, far, far less of the perpetrator's abuse, their physical violence, their emotional abusiveness, their manipulativeness, their economic abuse, their use of, of legal institutions and, and organisations to try and um, maintain their abuse. So far, far, far less abuse in the mums and the children's lives in order to recover. And as I say, separation often doesn't achieve that. So more would need to be done to get that perpetrator to stop. And that's often around legal interventions to get that perpetrator to stop. And then the, the second of the, of the three pillars is an end or a huge reduction in the perpetrator parenting the children in an abusive way. And undermining the the relationship the children have with their non-abusive parent because how can the children recover if they're still experiencing the perpetrator's abusive parenting and how can the mother-child relationship recover if it's still being undermined and perpetrators will often seek child contact post-separation in order to keep doing both those things to keep parenting the children in, in an abusive parenting style I mean if you look at the NSPCC's definition of emotional abuse perpetrators of domestic abuse are almost certainly 
qualifying for that. They're almost certainly parenting their children in an emotionally abusive way and quite likely also in a physically violent way. You know, they might be being physically violent towards their children. Sometimes they're sexually abusing their children as well. That's that's more likely in perpetrators of domestic abuse than it is in the general population. So children can't still be experiencing that if they need, you know, to recover, they can't still be experiencing that. That needs to have either stopped or massively reduced. And then the final pillar of the three pillars is the the people who are trying to recover, the, the parent and the children, they need a safe, suitable and settled place to live. That's so important. And they need enough money to live on while they're there because if they don't have a suitable place to live where they feel safe and secure and, and settled, and if they don't have enough money to live on, then they're still in survival mode and they'll be massively stressed out and unsettled. And you can't recover when you're in that state. You can't recover when you're still in survival mode and your your whole future is completely uncertain. You need some stability in order to do the massive emotional work of recovery. Recovery is, takes a lot of emotional energy. And if your emotional energy is still being directed at survival, then there's no emotional energy free to do that work of recovery. So those three pillars, I think, are the environments that are needed. And I think that anyone who's who's a professional supporting mums and children, anything they can do to get those three pillars in place, or at least one of those three pillars in place, that should be their aim. You know, a massive reduction, preferably an end to the abuse that they've that is in their daily lives, a massive reduction in the abusive parenting and the, the undermining of the mother-child relationship, and a and having a safe and secure and settled place to live and enough money to live on. I think those are that's the crucial environment that's needed for recovery. Can you say a bit more about that? So what do those practitioners who work with victims of domestic abuse, those who work with perpetrators and with those who work with children, what do they need to consider and do to best support the recovery of the child and the non-abusive parent to address those three pillars? Well... I think it's initially it's about getting those three pillars in place and, and I'm sure practitioners can identify, you know, ways of moving forward with that. So if the perpetrator is still being abusive, what legal measures can be taken to to curb that? You know, if the the perpetrator is, is still parenting in an abusive way, what can be done to reduce the child's contact with the perpetrator, you know, through the family court so that they're not that they're not having the opportunities to perpetrate um that that abusive parenting anymore and you know if the if it's within the practitioner's power to help the mums and children to secure you know access to more money to a better place to live to a suitable place to live you know housing support um support with perhaps claiming benefits or support with getting into work all those things practitioners can look at doing depending on what their role is but then once those environments are in place, once the three pillars are in place and we're good to go with recovery and there's been a big reduction in the everyday abuse that they're experiencing, there's been a big reduction in the abusive parenting the child is having to to endure and that's mostly out of the child's life and, and they're in the right place, you know, with, with money and with housing to, to start to recover. They're ready to recover. Then what can be done? So I think... From the from the research that I've done and from the other people's research that I'm familiar with, what then needs to be done is mums and children will need some help understanding what the hell has happened to them and that 
you know, that they've experienced domestic abuse, that they've experienced coercive control and they've survived it, which is amazing and, and incredible, but also that it was the perpetrator who caused all the abuse and it is the perpetrator who is responsible for it. So it was not the non-abusive parent's fault. It wasn't the child's fault. The child might think it was their fault. The child might think it was their non-abusive parent's fault. So that mums and children might need help to to overcome those negative ways of thinking and to realise it wasn't their fault, it was the perpetrator who caused all this problem. And then they might need help with expressing their emotions constructively. So it may be that they've they've both both the adult victim and the children have have bottled up their emotions because when they were around the perpetrator they had to bottle up their emotions and so it's become learnt behaviour. And so they might need help to express their emotions constructively and, and to, to know when to speak up about how they're feeling and how to do that so it doesn't all come out like a big volcano every so often. They might need help with strengthening their mental health, which might have been really undermined by all the abusiveness of the perpetrator, so they might need to be directed towards mental health support. And I know that's easier said than done because because there's there's limited resources, but that's definitely something that could well need to be looked at and they'll probably need support with building up their confidence and their self-esteem and also about they might need help talking to each other about what happened because it may be that they've experienced all this stuff but they don't really know how to talk to each other about it they might feel really nervous or worried or reluctant to talk to each other about it and if their relationship was really undermined by the perpetrator and, and has ended up in this really strained place and perhaps has become very distant, then they're probably going to need a lot of support to start relating to each other again in positive ways. So these are all things that are sort of on the list of what needs to happen in order to, to support recovery and to enable recovery. And um, whatever a practitioner's role is in the family, there, there'll be elements of this that they'll be able to help with. And of course, each individual practitioner doesn't have to sort of help with all of those things all by themselves, because that's an enormous plateful of things that need to be done. But they're all part of the puzzle. And so the more they can place survivors into whole networks of support, so they're getting the various different kinds of support they need from different practitioners, that's that's a really good idea. So, you know, you may only be able to provide one piece of the puzzle, but can you refer them on to other people who can who can help them with other pieces of that puzzle? So they've got a whole network of people who are who are helping them. And perhaps that can't all be done all at once because it would be overwhelming. But looking at doing your piece of work with them and then passing them on to the next person who can help with the next piece of the puzzle. So just seeing it as this as as there's lots of things to be done and looking at what role you can play and how you can help to ensure that other people can play the roles they need to play as well. So that sounds like it's seeing the whole person and the whole picture. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Thank you. I've, I've been going on and on about that. But yes, exactly. Seeing the whole person and the whole picture of everything that needs to be done. Yes. So for survivors of domestic abuse who may be worried about the children and their resources, um, how can, what, what resources can they access or what simple steps can they take um, to strengthen their relationship? So there's a couple of great books um, which were developed by researchers about 10 years ago with 
and they were developed with mums and children themselves who, who, who tested out the books and made sure that they were working. And the books are called Talking to My Mum and Talking About Domestic Abuse. Talking to My Mum is for mums with younger children, sort of um, junior school age children, and talking about domestic abuse is for, for mums with, with sort of secondary school age children, teenagers. And those books help mums and children to start opening that dialogue about what happened, realising that it that it wasn't their fault and, and starting to do some of those important recovery activities that will help them to move forward. The books can be done just by mums and children by themselves. They can sit on the sofa together and work through the books or... They can be done by a practitioner coming in and doing the activities with them and supporting them to work through the book. So it works either way. And there's also another great book called When Dad Hurts Mum, Helping Your Children to Heal the Wounds of Witnessing Abuse. And that book is by an American called Lundy Bancroft. And all these books, you can just get them off Amazon. You know, they're not from obscure booksellers, they're just on Amazon. And if you buy them used, you can get them for, for like a penny, particularly when dad hurts mum. I just had a look on Amazon this morning and it was available used for, for a penny. So obviously all you're paying for then is the post and packaging, um, which is like two quid. So it, it should be relatively possible to get hold of them. And I, th I, I, I think those books are great and they're a great starting point. And also, um, to get in touch with local domestic abuse services, um, which again is, is really easy, you could just Google domestic abuse in the name of your local area. So like I'm in, in Liverpool right now. So if I just Googled domestic abuse Liverpool, then the names of all the various support services will come up on that first results page or that second results page. And you can just get in touch with them and they may know of specific support services that are available for um for children and mums sometimes there's there's programs that help specifically help to rebuild the mother-child relationship and those programs could be available in your area or there's programs that are specific for children or there's children's workers who are available um like domestic abuse children's workers outreach workers who can spend some time with the child and help them so there's there may be all sorts of resources available in your area and it's just about kind of calling up the local services and saying this is my situation what resources are available thanks emma so looking forward what do you think are the most crucial areas for future research or interventions well i think that making that shift from realizing that it's not just physical violence that people have experienced it's this regime of coercive control that they've experienced it's this not being able to make their own everyday decisions, everyday life just being micromanaged and controlled and constrained and restricted by the perpetrator. That is what people have lived with and that is what people need support to recover from. And unless we get that, then we're not going to be giving the support and the interventions that people really need. And also, I think people are often people often think that domestic abuse is coming from the relationship. So it's like people will explain the abuse by saying it's a bad relationship, it's a turbulent relationship, there's a bad dynamic between the partners. But that's not actually what's going on. The abuse is not coming from the relationship, it's coming from the perpetrator 
whoever that abuser is, you know, it's it's most likely to be the male in the relationship, but it could, of course, be the female, less likely, but it could be. So it's coming from the perpetrator. It's coming from the perpetrator's deeply held attitudes and expectations and beliefs. That perpetrator believes that it's okay to behave in an abusive way to get what they want. And they believe it's okay to impose huge amounts of control over other people's lives. And those things are not okay. And that is what is causing the abuse. It's the perpetrator. It's not the relationship. And that perpetrator is going to carry on behaving in those ways after the relationship is over. They're almost certainly going to carry on behaving those ways towards their ex-partner, trying to control them, you know, trying to perhaps punish them for breaking their control by separating from them in the first place, trying to regain that control. They're going to carry on believing it's okay to abuse people to get what they want. They're going to carry on believing that it's okay to upset the children and harm the children and distress the children as part of their campaign to get what they want and to have that control. So that is not going to go away at the point of separation. And I think if we realise that, then we realise what needs to be done post-separation. You know, we need interventions that stop the perpetrator's abuse. And often the only way to do that is through really robust legal interventions to stop the perpetrator's abuse, far more robust interventions than usually happen right now. Because at the moment, we're not realising that that perpetrator is going to carry on unless stopped. I mean, not in 100% of cases, but in most cases, they are going to carry on unless really robust measures are put in place to stop them. And often it's it's the burden is placed on the victim to try and, and achieve that that safety and that's so unfair I think you know Viona Bruce who presented Crime Watch for many years she said that domestic abuse is the only situation where the victim is expected to go on the run rather than the perpetrator um you know it's the victim who's expected to do everything to to achieve safety and that has got to change it's it's not fair on the victim it's not possible for many victims so once we realise that we have to stop those perpetrators, then we can shift our whole focus and and do things that are more effective so that mums and children can recover. And also, of course, perpetrators, if they do lose control, really lose control of one set of one partner and one set of children, they're probably going to find a new partner and a new set of children to abuse. So without dealing with the perpetrator, it's like we're on a constant treadmill trying to keep up but the perpetrator was just wreaking more and more havoc. So we have to put more focus on stopping these perpetrators. I guess ultimately that's about preventative work so that the perpetrators are never created in the first place. But dealing with the perpetrators that we currently have in our society, we need to get far more robust at tackling them so that their abuse is stopped. And, and if we realise as well that the problem is in the perpetrator, that has implications for the family courts, you know, to, to realise that... These, these usually fathers who are applying for child contact, the problem is still within them, it is located within them. So they are probably applying for, for child contact as a means of carrying on that control. Um, so it's not like, it's not the case that because the parents have split up, then the abuse is all over and child contact can safely proceed. The perpetrator, the problem is still in that perpetrator who's, who's that parent who's seeking that child contact and and it's it's still that threat and that danger and that harm is still so present within them. So I think once we shift towards realising that, we'll be able to put in place interventions that are far more effective and 
I think that as a, as a society, we have so much power to do that if we chose to do that, if we chose to invest resources that way. And individual practitioners, I know they're, they're, they're probably doing their best in a system that is quite dysfunctional. You know, the whole system that we have of responding to domestic abuse is quite dysfunctional. But practitioners do have a lot of power to help the victims and survivors and, and the child victims and survivors just by giving them a good response, by by recognising that... I don't know, by tr I guess so many survivors, they say that the practitioners who helped them the most were the ones who treated them like a human being, treated them with respect and and really listened to them. And even if they couldn't do huge amounts to help, just that experience of being listened to and being treated with a great deal of respect and being told, actually, you are strong and, and I see your strength and I think you're amazing and look at what you've survived, that is so amazing. Just by practitioners saying that to them, that's done huge amounts of good for, for their recovery. So practitioners have more power than they know to, to be that person who, you know, really change lives with the way that they respond. So even, I know it can be really frustrating as part of, to be part of a system that's quite dysfunctional, but people do have more power than, than they realize to, just by being a, a really good human being to another human being, it can be really powerful and effective. So yeah, I guess there's lots to think about um, in terms of future research and interventions. And I think the main thing is is that shift towards realising it's not about physical violence. It's about this perpetrator seeking power and control, this coercive control perpetrator. The problem lies within them. We have to tackle them. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs>